The Affordable Care Act made some key changes to employer-sponsored insurance, including a requirement that employers with more than 50 employees provide health benefits or pay a fine. The law allows employees at companies that don't provide coverage to sign up for insurance through public exchanges. But so far, few employers have decided to drop their health benefits. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Robert Galvin, Chief Executive Officer of Equity Healthcare. Dr. Galvin has written a prospective article about changes to employer-sponsored insurance under the ACA and how employers have responded to them. Dr. Galvin, you write in your article that under the play-or-pay model, almost all employers have chosen to continue to offer health benefits rather than pay a fine that would actually be a smaller expenditure. How much does that have to do with uncertainty regarding how policies may change in the years ahead? Well, Steve, I think uncertainty is a major factor. I think that employers in many ways are looking to see how things play out. But I do want to take exception to something you said in your intro, which is the idea that it is less expensive isn't necessarily proving out to be true. And that has ended up being an influencer. So when the bill first passed, and it seemed pretty simple that if an employer had to pay a $2,000 or $3,000 fine for not covering, that was certainly going to be less than the $10,000 that they do for coverage, that they pay now for coverage of health benefits. But it turns out that people kind of underestimated both the impact of the tax deductibility that is granted to employers for covering and how important health benefits are in recruiting and retaining employees. So essentially what happened is that $2,000 being less than $10,000 ended up not to be true. And what happens just in capsule is that if you're not going to cover benefits for an employee and you pay your two dollars or $3,000 fine, you still have to increase the employee's salary to help them buy benefits on their own. I mean, you don't have to. There is no law that you do. But remember, the key of why employers offer health benefits is they want to recruit and then retrain and, and retain talented employees. So they're going to have to increase the amount of salary they give employees so they can afford the benefits. That's not tax deductible. So at the end of the day, I think people who thought that employers were going to drop this really didn't understand how important benefits are in keeping good employees. Will that equation change if some companies start deciding not to provide health benefits? Will there be a tipping point at some stage? I think that's a good question. There's an old thing about employers and how they act in healthcare is that there's a rush to get into the door second. So it is certainly possible that if an employer, particularly in the group of employers that find it really important to keep talented employees do it, that others could do it. But I don't see that very likely in the near future. Again, if you look at the labor force, you have to divide employers kind of into different stratifications. So the ones who have dropped already and might drop are those, the kind of employees they attract, it's a different kind of labor force. So if you're looking at highly talented employees in any kind of service, if you're the first employer to make a move and you lose your talented employees, that's an awfully big risk to take for what's really just the savings on a benefit. I want to ask you about the Cadillac tax. If it becomes effective in 2020, as is currently planned, 27% of employers could face the tax, and that figure would increase as the years go on. What would happen in terms of revenue generation, deterrence of excess healthcare spending, and whatever else the tax was meant to accomplish if Congress further delayed it or scrapped it altogether? You've hit on something important. I think the excise or so-called Cadillac tax is a really big 
awakened the CEOs of companies uh, to kind of healthcare and their role in it in a way that I really haven't seen in over 20 years since the attempted Clinton reform. And if you talk to CEOs and ask them, you explain to them what the Cadillac tax is and ask them what they're going to do, their answer is, I'm not going to end up paying it. So I think that if it does come to be in, in 2020 or beyond, I think what you'll see is so many actions, and I go into this into the perspective, so many actions to avoid paying for it that you're going to have far less than that 27% paying it. In fact, my bet would be that you'd have very few. Let me talk for a second about whether I think the Cadillac tax is going to happen, because I think that's something that every CEO and CFO that I work with is asking me. And my answer, of course, is that no one knows, but honestly, it seems unlikely. When you have some policy that Democrats and Republicans agree that they don't like, which is the case here, it's just hard to see it finding the light of day. The Democrats don't like it because it's going to attack union Taft-Hartley plans first because they're very rich plans. And Republicans don't like it because it's a tax, for one thing, and they just want to be left alone. So what I think is going to happen with the Cadillac tax is it's likely every year to become an issue and likely to get delayed almost every year. It, to me, it's almost equivalent to what the sustainable growth rate was on increasing Medicare fees to physicians. So if you average it at about oh, 8 to $9 billion a year, Congress can find a way to kind of make up for that kind of money. Repealing it altogether, where it's closer to $90 billion, is much more difficult to do in a major tax overhaul. But employers are watching. If they do think there's a likelihood they're going to do it, you're going to see them make so many changes to their benefit packages that I think that very few of that 27% will end up paying it. One of the arguments against the ACA has been that it could encourage employers to move their workers into part-time employment. How is that playing out? Employers have certainly tried, and there is no definitive data about what's happening. But it turns out, anecdotally, that it's much harder to do than employers thought. It generally has to do with keeping their customers satisfied, so that many employers who tried to move employees from full-time to part-time found out that their customers actually liked the person that they were dealing with on a full-time basis. There were all sorts of issues with handoffs from one part-time employee to another. And there really is limited evidence that they've been successful in doing this at all, although it's been attempted. You talk in your article about the controversy around consumer-directed high-deductible plans. Why are these plans becoming more popular among employers? And do you think that the concern that patients who have these plans will avoid necessary care are valid concerns? The idea of consumer-directed or high-deductible plans, their origin and growth started before the Accountable Care Act, but it's been accelerated by it. And the primary reason they have grown as fast as they have is that they save money. It is probably the biggest tool that any employer has if they want to avoid the Cadillac or excise tax. And what you find is when employees and their families are paying a higher deductible, there's a significant decrease in their utilization of health services. And that drives down costs for employees and employers, and it drives it down in a way that would avoid that excise tax. The controversy comes from the fact that when people use fewer services, there is 
good evidence that they use fewer services that probably aren't of any help at all, but they also use fewer services that they ought to be doing, such as taking medications that have been prescribed or following up on conditions that are silent. Remember, it's an interesting fact that some of the most important and tough conditions that Americans have, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, are all silent diseases. There's little pain involved, and so it becomes easy for people to say, geez, I'm not in any pain. I think I'm doing okay. I don't need to do this visit. So the controversy is that this higher deductible does make people kind of more cognizant about spending, but does it do it in a way that's in people's benefit or not? I would add that proponents of high deductible say that we're underestimating employees, that we're in a transition period, and that if you give people tools, the, the price of services, options about the price of services, in fact, they'll make much smarter decisions than most people give them credit for. And there's some evidence on that side as well. Finally, what are employers keeping an eye on going into the presidential election this year? How could the election affect employer-sponsored insurance? Well, again, I think it goes back to your first question about certainty and uncertainty. So if a scenario came about that Obamacare or the ACA was completely repealed, they would certainly be no more worried about the excise tax, and they could go back to business as usual. If, on the other hand, you have a completely Democratic Congress and White House, you could see what employers have feared all along, that the fees, the $2,000, $3,000 fees, some of the kind of the cap at which the excise tax needs to be paid, start to move not in their favor. So I think that the election will help solve some of the uncertainty about what's going to happen to this act, but that's really what they're looking at. Thank you, Dr. Galvin.